Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We hear a lot about the U.S. stock market and whether it's overvalued. And we hear a lot of people saying, well, you know, honestly, there is momentum underneath the U.S. Uh, growth rate and we are going to see uh, better earnings continue. But here to dash that to bits is Ernesto Ramos, uh, head of equities at BMO Global Asset Management, which oversees $233 billion. And he joins me, joins me here in the Bloomberg 1130 uh, studios. I was looking at your recent note and you basically said the U.S. economy has peaked. We've seen it. It's as good as it's going to get. Well, yes, and and I think it can continue at this uh, relatively modest pace for a little bit, but we're certainly not going to get to the three percent growth that uh, that uh, the administration has told us we're going to get. And there's several factors behind that. But if you just look at the data, car sales are slowing down. The yield curve is telling you something. It's it's uh, flattened quite a bit, uh, and and we just don't see where. Combining the productivity uh, that we have in the current uh, economy, which is about 1.5% plus 0.3% of expansion of, of the labor force, you're going to get to three. So I th we think we, we, we're we going to stay around these levels and maybe start declining from here. And the Fed might just uh, compound the problem a little bit more by by raising interest rates. So we just don't see this 3% scenario. We see we see us stuck here and maybe declining from here going forward. Do you think that current valuations in equities right now are baking in a growth rate that's higher than we currently are seeing and that people are going to have to ratchet back their expectations and possibly uh, suffer some losses as people right-size their expectations? Well, the, the the economic growth rate is not what drives the stock market. What drives the stock market is earnings growth. And there we saw a pretty strong number. Uh, the last print was about 15% year-on-year growth. And we still see potential for that to continue in the double digits, maybe 10 or 11% looking out a year forward. So that doesn't mean the stock market can't continue to go to move higher. Um, the, the risk there is the valuation, as you mentioned, because the valuations are a little bit stretched. So disappointment in that earnings growth rate could lead to a pullback. And uh, given the current economic scenario, we think there's there's a potential chance for a pullback, not to mention all the political and geopolitical risks associated with uh, the current Trump administration that are sometimes blowing uh, um, some... some uh, some headwinds into the market like we saw last Wednesday when the announcement came out that there was a special counsel appointment and so on and so forth. So so we see enough risks out there to, to make us a little bit cautious. So how do you position to be cautious? What does that mean? Is it taking all your money and putting it in cash and sitting on it? Nope. That's not uh, what we would do. What, <laughs> all right. Then. <laughs> what would you do? So we, we still want to remain uh, uh, exposed to, to the upside in equities, but be defensively positioned for a potential drawdown. And that's why the BMO, the BMO Global Asset Management Low Volatility Fund, is right now one of the, the preferred choices to do this because uh, on the average, we offer about 70% of the upside participation of the market. But in a downturn, we only deliver about half of the of the negative return. So it's a good, uh, very good trade-off, 70 versus 50. So you participate right. enough that you do get, over the long term, a better return. So, Ernesto, 
how is it marketing a low volatility fund at a time when volatility is the lowest that it possibly has been in our lifetimes, <laughs> depending on what measure you look at? And that's precisely the right time to buy protection against right. volatility spiking. But it is not easy. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. I imagine you get a lot of people looking at you with one eyebrow raised, sort of, you know, really? What are you trying to sell me right now? Well, you buy fire insurance when your house is not on fire. <laughs> And this is the same reason you buy low volatility when volatility is low. But if it, there's more chances of it spiking here than, than going even further lower. Although, do you think that some of the gauges that are traditionally used, namely the VIX, are sort of imperfect ways to measure volatility and that you won't be able to rely on the same types of instruments going forward to really reflect some of the jitters that, that people are feeling? Yeah, I've heard a little bit about what you're talking about. I haven't dug in deep enough to understand. They say that with the new high-frequency trading right. and all of the, the new ways people are approaching the market that maybe vol low volatility is here to stay. Um, I've yet to get my arms around all those notions, but Every time you've seen volatility get to levels like this in the past, the odds are that it's going to rebound from here. And if you look at the market being near a top and volatility at all-time low, uh, all-time lows, that is actually a bit of a warning signal that things can actually go south from here. Real quick, how do you hedge against volatility? Well, we basically look at, at, at every stock in the universe in terms of its risk, and we're looking to buy companies that have lower risk characteristics and at the same time have strong return potential. Companies like the um, Apple, for example, believe it or not, it's a low-risk stock. Companies like American Express, which is also low-risk stock. Companies like Darden, or companies like Baxter, all of these are low-risk stocks, but yet with attractive fundamentals. And very importantly, attractively priced, because one of the risks right now in low volatility, especially the passive instruments, is that they've been priced out of sight. But we are very conscious of what we pay for our low-risk stocks, so we're actually trading uh, our portfolio trades at a discount, not only to the, the vo low volatility passive instruments, but the market itself. So uh, we think we're protected ourselves, protecting ourselves and our clients from hidden the hidden risk of high prices or high valuations in low vol stocks. Ernesto Ramos, thank you so much for joining us. Ernesto Ramos is head of equities for BMO Global Asset Management, which oversees $233 billion uh, of assets. And he has the thankless job of going out and convincing people why they should be uh, at all fearful of volatility at a time when everybody seems to be in a complacent uh, daze. Thank you so much for joining us. China was downgraded by Moody's overnight for the first time since 1989, and Moody's Investor Service cited China's huge buildup of debt as the main risk factor that the uh, country would have a hard time both tamping down on leverage and meeting its obligations without running into uh, some sort of problem, possibly slowing growth and meaning that their obligations uh, would be that much more onerous. To understand what the challenges are for China and how significant uh, this ratings downgrade really is. I want to bring in Patrick Shavanik. He's chief strategist at Silvercrest Asset Management uh, based in New York City. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'd love to first get your take on why Moody's thought it would be necessary to downgrade China now. This is a surprise move. It was not something that was widely anticipated. Well, it's a shot across the bow, I think, uh, that, that reflects a host of concerns that have been mounting for years about China's 
reliance on ever-expanding credit to drive growth and and the mounting debt burden that that's created. And so it's you know that it's it's it may be a surprise in, in in the sense that they didn't signal it in advance, but it's no surprise to people who have been watching China that this is a concern. Right. And it's interesting to me that there was not very much reaction, frankly, in markets, uh, certainly not in China. You can see that the 10-year yield actually ended the day down uh, a touch. So people don't seem to be that uh, thrown off by the Moody's warning. One argument is that a lot of the debt is held uh, by banks or by the government. In other words, it would make it easier uh, to bail out. It's not necessarily the consumer getting over leveraged. Do you buy that argument? Well, that's true in a sense. And it's also true that there's not a lot of exposure from outside of China to Chinese debt. Um, so so it, it, it's entirely true that, that uh, within a closed financial system, a, a lot of debt can be um, uh, restructured in, in all kinds of ways. And, and uh, uh, the kind of default risk that we might see in a market economy is, is less. But that's actually part of the problem. Part of the problem is just the opacity of this and the fact that, that you've got debt that continues to mount that even if it's not recognized, even if the losses um, are not transparent, they become a, a drag on, on the economy and a drag on growth. And, and money keeps on flowing in because people assume that someone will, else will pick up the tab. So as an investor, how do you invest around China's predicament, the sort of uh, balancing act that is quite dangerous between both trying to prevent excess leverage uh, and not slowing down the economy so much so as to make the incredible debt load uh, insurmountable? Well, we've been very skeptical of China's growth model for some time. Um, you know, I before my current job, I was a professor at Tsinghua University, and you know, was one of the people ten years ago highlighting the the danger to, uh, of of China's debt explosion. Uh, you know, that said, I think for the rest of the global economy, a slowdown in in the kind of growth that we've seen in China. Uh, the in investment intensive growth might actually be a good thing for the rest of the global economy. There's been too much overinvestment and too much overcapacity. So, uh, to the extent that that you know they, they try to rein in debt, which unfortunately they haven't, uh, you know that that would be a good thing for the global economy, not a bad thing. Um, can you tease that out a little bit? I mean, because I understand what you're saying from the perspective of perhaps uh, you know Chinese money, for example, flowing into the Toronto housing market and, and inflating it uh, to an unsustainable level. But when it comes to other economies in the region near China, I mean, hasn't the incredible growth in China really bolstered all of emerging markets? It depends on where you stand relative to the Chinese economy. If you've been feeding China's investment or overinvestment boom, if you've been selling commodities, for example, uh, if you are, you know, uh, if you're if you're feeding its its insatiable demand for inputs, then yes, uh, you're hurt by China's slowdown. But you know, it's China's overcapacity has also been a great exporter of deflation globally. And so, you know, we, we talk about uh, the, the idea of secular stagnation throughout other economies and, and where does it come from? Well, a lot of it comes from the imbalances that are generated by China's overinvestment. And, and it's 
unwillingness to consume commensurate with what it produces. So, so a rebalancing of China's economy, even if it means slower growth from China, is actually a positive. So in other words, you're saying that potentially China slowing down could actually help inflation pick up. Am I, am I taking one step too many here? It's, it, you know, what, the problem is that we assume that all growth is good growth, and no matter where it is and no matter what it consists of globally. And in fact, a lot of the growth that's taken place in China that's been fueled by all this credit expansion is not good for either China or for the rest of the world. So going forward, what are you looking for to make sure that China is sort of managing this balancing act in a way that isn't going to be messy? Because well, I mean, every, the, go ahead. What everyone's been looking for is reform, which China four years ago announced was urgent and, and would move forward. Uh, and in fact, we've seen very little to show for it. And, and in fact, it's interesting because the, the Chinese response to Mo- the Moody's announcement was, well, they're ignoring all the reforms that we're undertaking. No. In fact, Moody's move, I think, is a reflection of growing frustration by people outside of China watching China's promises about reform and, and the unwillingness or inability to deliver on them. What kind of reforms? Uh, unfortunately, it's a whole host of reforms, including uh, the financial sector, um, allowing for companies that are losing money chronically to fail, uh, allowing for a readjustment of asset markets. We saw a failure uh, to allow that kind of adjustment in the stock market a few years ago in China, where they intervened heavily. Uh, there's just a whole host of imbalances that the Chinese themselves have recognized yeah. uh, need a correction, and yet when push comes to shove, they're they're not willing to allow those corrections to take place. Patrick Shavanik, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, truly truly a helpful insight into uh, China's path forward in light of the Moody's downgrade and just in general of how much uh, they've expanded their debt load as they've tried to prop up their economic growth rate. Patrick Shavanik is Managing Director and Chief Strategist at Silvercrest Asset Management in New York. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. We have heard a lot about billionaire Carl Icahn being an advisor to President Trump, uh, giving him hints on how to change regulations. And it's already coming clear uh, that he personally and his empire of companies uh, have benefited quite a bit from his influence over President Trump. Here to explain more is Mario Parker, who is an agricultural reporter for Bloomberg News and comes to us from our Chicago Bureau. Mario, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, First, can you just explain uh, the situation with one company in particular, CVR Energy, which has already benefited quite substantially from Carl Icahn's influence over President Trump? Can you explain how? (laughs) 
Sure, absolutely. Well, um, Carl Icahn owns a majority stake in CVR Energy. It's a um, it's an oil refiner, and under uh, a George Bush um, energy law, um, most people know it as the ethanol mandate. Um, oil refiners are required to set aside um, a percentage of their production to uh, renewable fuels. Now, if you're not able to do that, if you're a refiner and you don't have, say, the infrastructure to do that, you have to go on the markets. It's almost like cap and trade. You go on the open market and then you purchase uh, something called renewable identification numbers or credits, right? Well, Carl Icahn, this has been costing his business, uh, CVR Energy, um, upwards of $200 million. And he's uh, fighting um, and advocating a change uh, for the Trump administration to um, tweak who's responsible for adhering to this mandate or showing compliance with the mandate. He wants it to be moved from refiners like himself uh, further downstream to uh, closer to the customer, to those that actually have the infrastructure and blend renewable fuels. And... Um, Right now, the market seems to be betting that that uh, that, that Icon has a pretty good shot at getting his getting his way if uh, if if costs and prices for the credits are to be any right. type of indication. And, and Mario, I mean, just from an outsider's perspective, this might seem like a pretty small technicality, but just to sort of give a sense of the scope of this potential change in money terms, uh, so far, uh, CVR Energy has conceivably saved about $60 million based on the decline in this over-the-counter market for R&Is, or basically uh, these certificates you can get to replace having to actually do the blending of the ethanol in your fuel yourself, right? Right, exactly. So just um, just from the fourth quarter of 2016 to the first quarter of this uh, this year, it's been a $60 million swing. <laughs> it's gone from, uh, they spent, CVR spent about $53.5 million in the fourth quarter, and uh, they saved about, uh, or they saw a benefit of about $6.4 million in the first quarter. And this has been why, what's interesting is that it's been widespread as well. So it's not just CVR that's benefited, but uh, also its competitors as a result of this, that we're talking right. the Valeros, the Delta Airlines, et cetera. Well, you know, you have to think that a lot of companies, there's so much money at stake here that there's going to be a lot of lobbying on all sides. How much power does President Trump and his immediate uh, surrounding officials have to unilaterally change this obligation and sort of kick the uh, the requirement downstream a little bit in order to and basically effectively reducing the uh, cost of these RNIs? Sure. Well, it's a little unclear. They do have the power to, to make that change. And as a matter of fact, uh, the EPA is considering it right now. Uh, public comments uh, come public comment period on it ended uh, in late February. So uh, conceivably, we should get some type of verdict, yay or nay, uh, sometime this year. So they have the authority to do it. But of course, there's so so much money at stake, so many different parties that uh, it will ultimately lead to um, some some legal uh, confrontation as well. well. I was going to say, I mean, stepping back a little bit outside of the nitty gritty of this specific issue, this has to raise some questions about Carl Icahn's influence over the president, given the fact that he is an unpaid advisor who hasn't been vetted by Congress, who hasn't had to uh, comply with, a, you know, sort of a conflict of interest protocol. And he 
is directly benefiting. I mean, from what he's what he's advocating, what what do people say about that when you talk to them? Sure, sure. Talking to just uh, analysts and 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 researchers and those that kind of study uh, ethics, I mean, they say that this is almost a clear cut issue of uh, conflict of interest, and that uh, more information should be disclosed because of you know the sense is that hey. You, this person has the president's ear. This person is advocating for this change, and this would uh, this is helping this person financially already. But would this actually itself lead to some kind of legal challenge, or is that a harder, uh, harder kind of uh, <laughs> path to go? No, no, it probably will. I mean, the, before the magnitude of uh, uh, of these gains were even disclosed. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren and uh, other Democratic lawmakers sent a letter to uh, federal regulators asking for more information into this issue, how this works, etc. And then, of course, yeah. on the other side, um, those opposing this change, uh, from those in the biofuel industry all the way to um, uh, some of the mom-and-pop and convenience stores, etc., I mean, it's 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 likely to be headed to a, a legal confrontation if yeah. uh, this is indeed moved. Mario Parker, thank you so much for joining us. Mario Parker is an agriculture reporter for Bloomberg News coming to us from Chicago. lucky because I have Joel Stern in the Bloomberg 1130 studios with me. He is chairman and chief executive officer of Stern Value Management in New York. Also, he is a visiting professor at five. That's right. Five different business schools, including the University of Chicago, my alma mater. So uh, I wanted to uh, start with you. Uh, to talk a little bit about the complacency that we see in the markets, not generally with a lack of volatility, but with respect to a Fed policy error. It seems like when you talk to people, they are they have so much faith in the Fed that they're going to move slowly at a reserved pace, that everything will just sort of work out and it won't really disrupt markets. What do you think they're getting wrong? Do you think that they're getting anything wrong? Where could the Fed surprise them? Well, first of all, if the Fed doesn't do much, if they're stable about their policy, that's a good policy because we want the economy and the private sector to do its miracles. And the problem often takes place is when the Fed starts to either increase the money supply rapidly or cut back on the money supply rapidly. And if they do either of those two things, we have very bad outcomes. As you know, there has been a lot of liquidity created during the economic meltdown of 07, 08, 09. And, you know, the Fed has a balance sheet that it looks like it has exploded, right? Yeah. And the question is, what if they start to uh, 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 try to pull that stuff in? Uh, nothing, nothing. That will not be harmful. Why? It has never been let out. You see, what happened was the Fed has essentially kept it to itself without affecting the economy. Keep in mind, lots of monetarists over the last five years kept saying, oh, my gosh, are we going to have inflation? Right. Well, you would have had inflation if the Fed had let the bank reserves go into money supply, create excess money, and right. that would have created inflation. And interest rates today on government bonds could have been 10 percent. So okay? in other words, so yeah. just just reading um, between what you're saying, in other words, it seems like you think that investors are right 
to have faith that the Fed will only move at a glacial pace and be really reserved. I'm sorry. I don't think that investors have faith. I think what the Fed uh, investors have is expectations. And they have been led to believe by Janet Yellen and even people before her. I have seen interviews with Ben Bernanke after his uh, retirement from the Fed, and all of them are saying much much of the same thing. And that is this, again, if the Fed maintains a stable policy, and that means very slow monetary growth, very slow, believe it or not, inflation is not coming back, okay? One more thing I should say. I've been listening to the Europeans and others say, man, we need at least 2% inflation in order to have 2% real growth. I don't know where they got that theory from. I've been teaching economics for 50 years, and I've never heard that argument at all. We don't need any inflation to grow at better than 2%. In fact, it is my belief if the Fed, I'm sorry, if the, if the uh, Trump administration does just two things, number one, They don't have to get rid of all of the 2,000-plus regulations that Obama put in place, just the onerous ones. And there are plenty of those. There might be about 160 altogether. If they get rid of those regulations and then they slash the corporate income tax rate, then we're off to the races. What's the reason? Our 26 major trading partners have a median corporate income tax rate of only 22%. Our marginal tax rate, including city and state for corporations, is as much as 40%. Although many corporations only pay about 15%. Many do. And by the way, one of the reasons they do is the same reason why people like you and me hire tax advisors to bring down our effective tax rate. No, none of us wants to pay the full tax rate. And if you make it worthwhile, you make it worthwhile, people will do it. But that's not the point. The point is that when new investments are contemplated, it is the after-tax rate of return that people care about on those investments. In other words, to grow the economy... We need new investment. And the question is, what will the after-tax rate of return be on that? Now, of course, they could look for other tax dodges that are legal and bring the tax rate down. But what if they are unable? So what are the onerous regulations, the 160 truly onerous regulations that you're pointing to? And how can people watch them to sort of get a sense of whether or not they will be cut in order to spur growth? Well, they have an effect on me personally. Uh, I am the CEO of three companies altogether, and I'm in negotiation now with an overseas fund that wants me to work with them to use my ideas in financial economics to make a new fund based on that. And they said, and we'd like to be publicly traded. I said, well, not in the United States. He said, what? Why not New York? I said, you must be kidding. You don't want to be there. This is really interesting because this is the uh, the new uh, head of the SEC is making this his priority, right? Is to sort of roll back some of the regulations Absolutely. that the initial public offering. Sorry, uh, more, more, process. more. Listen, yeah. I gave a talk two years ago before a private equity group in Miami, Florida. They were just having a convention there. And I expected to meet private equity people, but I didn't. I met people who are in the banking business. And I said, what? What's happening here? Who are you people? And they said, no, <laughs> we're ordinary people just like you, and, uh, just like you Joel. But we went into the banking business because Dodd-Frank is stopping the banks from lending money. You see, by the way, I went to visit the people over at Citibank. I couldn't believe it. They have over 150 new people, and their job is to engage in compliance with all of these regulations. That's a good way to run a business, don't you think? So you think that if some of these uh, regulations were pulled back, then you would see more IPOs, you would see uh, more investments and things other than compliance, which uh, a lot of people argue is a non-productive. Right. And I would take my company, the new company, I would take it public in New York. 
I wouldn't take it public in London, which is where I'm going to plan to do it. Uh, London will be a joint. Uh, we'll have more than one location for the public offering. But what I'm saying to you is what determines growth is new investment. And in order to see new investment, the rate of return on that investment after taxes and after regulation has to be greater than a required rate of return for the risk. Okay? We know we can calculate the required return for risk. If the returns are going to be above that, we'll have favorable outcomes. But over the last seven, eight years, it has been a disaster. Okay? Joel Stern, thank you so much for joining us. Truly a pleasure hearing what you have to say. Joel Stern is chairman and chief executive officer of Stern Value Management. Also, he is a visiting professor uh, at five or six, an adjunct professor at six different uh, business schools. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.